Hey y'all, it's Coop. And as you may remember, Danielle's away at Yale for the next two weeks, researching new and innovative methods to reach urban youth in classrooms. Kudos to you for that. And yes, we miss you a little bit. So in episode eight of Ain't No Free Lunch, we have a good friend of mine, Albert Butler, as a guest host. And this week we discuss Islamophobia, the upcoming Republican convention, and if Donald J. Trump has a path to victory. Let's eat, y'all. So, as you all heard in this week's introduction, Danielle is away at Yale doing some research. Hashtag teaching for a change. And this week we have the pleasure of having Albert Butler, who I met a few years back. And what's up, man? How are you? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me on. Oh, man. Thanks so much for coming. So the short version of it is a few years back, I was asked to consider a bid for Congress. And I don't think I understood exactly what I was getting myself into when I was exploring the idea. And I was introduced to Albert through a mutual friend. And uh, over the past two years, we just kind of stayed in touch. He's advised me on a number of different things and just become a a good friend. So thanks again. Tell us a little bit about you, Albert. Yeah, man. First of all, I was happy to uh, meet you back then. And and I'm happy to help out along the way because we need a lot more folks who are like yourself, who are well-positioned, well-intentioned, and have the tools to make things happen in the political space, whether you're actually running for office or whether you're applying pressure to people who are or organizing for people who are running for office, it's really important that the, the next generation of political leaders get out there and be aggressive, um, particularly ones uh, that represent communities that are underserved, women, African-Americans, and such. So I really appreciate what you're doing, man, in, in that front. When we met, uh, I was working, I was just getting a, coming on board with a campaign for mayor of the city of Philadelphia. Unfortunately, we lost, um, but it was a it was a hard campaign. And we we worked really hard to go against several opponents. We had a big field. I think there was like six or seven uh, folks who ran in the end, and nobody dropped out, which is never happens usually in, in a Philadelphia mayoral. Somewhere along the way, it boils down to two or three candidates. That just never happened. That kind of hurt us, but in the end. There was a lot of energy behind the, the person who ended up winning the office, uh, and it, it really wasn't a close election, so that kind of hurt our feelings. <laughs> right. But um, since then, I've been bouncing around different things. Uh, one of the things that often happens with folks uh, who get involved in campaigns, whether you win or lose, you get into consulting. So I kind of followed that path as well. So I work in a communication space, uh, consulting, um, particularly nonprofits, uh, folks who are in the the media world for the first time or inexperienced in the media world that either their organization specifically has uh, found themselves in the spotlight or there's a subject matter that they feel that they want to speak to that will help their organization in the long run. And I help get them ready and teach them the difference between doing radio and television, short-term long-form interviews, and uh, just get them working, uh, working better in that space, doing communications work as well. So I, I do that. And then also I still do the political stuff. So like you said earlier, I talked to you a little bit about things running for office, but I've also helped other folks who formed exploratory committees, uh, other folks who are actually in running for office, whether they're incumbents or they're new to the seat uh, and challenging. 
uh, help them with strategy, help them with communications work. So that's where I find myself right now. Well, once again, welcome and thanks for coming aboard and just continuing the conversation in Danielle's absence this week. So it's my pleasure. Want to just kind of move along pretty quickly. Last night, we uh, there was another terrorist attack in France, this time in Nice, and a driver of a truck mowed over hundreds of people. We have more than 80 dead. I think we have 200 injured, 50 that are considered life-threatening injuries. And there's been a lot of conversation on social media today about why why do these um, terrors keep occurring in France? And I guess the international support France receives through these uh, tragic events, while some of the incidents occur here in America, we don't receive the same type of international support. So uh, any thoughts on that, man? Well, when you see what happened there, first of all, it's, it's a tragedy that it's, it's hard to even wrap your mind around. 84 people, I think, was the last count I saw uh, who have since died from this uh, attack and hundreds injured, wrapping your mind around that and folks just having a good time. And then all of a sudden their lives are just torn apart. Uh, I, I can't even imagine going through something like that. And it, we, we've seen events like this unfold. One of the things that I want to guard against is the, the initial reports are that it's, it's a, a terrorist attack and we have a, a suspect and or the police obviously shooting the guy, but they say he's a terrorist, right? Right. The, the thing that I, I worry about is that one of the news reports I read uh, this morning talked about how this guy, or one of his neighbors was talking about how this guy had been distraught over a, a divorce and that he had gone into a deep depression and that there were some financial issues. And uh, this person uh, who was a neighbor who'd known him for years chalked it up to this person having a mental break in a psychotic episode more so than him being a fervent believer of a particular religion. And I think in this country it's particularly important that we kind of try to make these lines. There, there are so many people who are interested and invested in making sure that terrorist attacks are linked to Islam. And obviously there are people who purport to be of Islamic faith carrying out terrorist attacks. Sure. Uh, and, and that has to be, that's a real concern. Obviously, ISIS is a real thing. Al-Qaeda is a real thing. Uh, with And they use Islam as a backdrop for the reasons that they do what they do. But for many folks like myself, we recognize that there are many people who commit acts of violence in the name of religion, but that doesn't make them true representations of that religion, a.k.a. the Klan and Christianity. Right. Um, but... In this country, I think it's it's a it's a large concern because there's so many things that can go against us in a kind of civil liberty space and a security space for individuals when it's so easy to label something terrorism and a person a terrorist, then certain things get done to you, civil certain civil liberties get stripped from you. And as an individual, if you're living in this country, you lose due process. And I think as Americans, as we look at what's going on abroad, we're so quick to say that that's a terrorist attack. And it ends up informing what happens here in this country as far as how people 
develop policy and implement policy and also push for elections and re-elections because it often gets put in the forefront of I'm going to be tough on terror. Well, what does that mean? Right. Who, who are we putting on the no-fly lists? Who are we taking um, opportunities from? Who are we spying on domestically, I'm talking about? And so when you have organizations like, for example, Black Lives Matter, and there's a petition circulating trying to get them labeled a terrorist group. Right. Well, I saw if that. Someone, if someone gets them labeled a terrorist group, then what happens to that organization? Those people can't fly, Right. So they can't go around uh, and, and support each other in various locations where they would go to to protest against police violence. Um, it hampers their ability to stay employed. It hampers their ability, if they are detained, to remain an American citizen while being detained and not considered an enemy combatant. So there's all kinds of um, ramifications, ramifications involved with how terrorism, quote unquote, terrorism is structured and how we attack it. So. Uh, while this event in Nice is awful and traumatic, uh, I think folks have to be careful about just saying because this person has a certain kind of name that automatically it's uh, an act of Islamic terror. And I, I think we have to really take our time with these kind of things. If it is, if it ends up being that, then it has to be addressed and uh, precautions have to be taken. Measures have to be taken to make sure that folks behind such an attack, if there's it's an individual, whether it's a cell, whether it's a larger organization, that those folks, um, we try to stop them as, as best we can. You can't stop it to, altogether, but you can do the best that you can to try to stamp it out. But if it's not, then you're going to throw a whole bunch of resources into something that wasn't even there in the first place. And those resources could be better used in other places where those threats actually do exist. That's why I think it's so important for the international community and uh, the United States to be very careful about how we approach that. Yeah, you know, I find it very, very interesting. I was having this conversation earlier today, how, as you said earlier, ISIS, ISIL, Al-Qaeda, they are definitely threats to our national security, our international security. But how quick we are to to say things like, oh, this is this is terrorism and this is radical Islam and you know, I have friends, I have family members, even though I'm a Christian, I have friends and family members that are uh, practitioners of Islam. And there are no tenets of terror attacks in Islam and how quick we are to condemn the entire religion. But we don't do so with Christianity, as you alluded to, Clan, with Dylan Roof, with Timothy McVeigh. You know, we we always say these things like, oh, they did this in the name of Islam. And, you know, even today, someone that was a finalist to be Trump's vice presidential nominee, who's apparently on Trump's shortlist for a cabinet opportunity, who's the former speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Last night, he said, oh, we need to have our religion test and anyone that supports Sharia law needs to be deported from this country. And let me be as blunt and as direct as I can be. Western civilization is in a war. We should, frankly, test every person from here who's, who is of a Muslim background, and if they believe in Sharia, they should be deported. Sharia is incompatible with Western civilization. Modern Muslims who have given up Sharia, glad to have them as citizens. 
which is, is crazy to say. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous, it, but you're going to deport citizens now, you know, and someone like Newt, who considers himself um, an originalist, a constitutionalist, etc., like that's just a violation. And I wish I could say that I wasn't surprised, but I'm still disappointed and I'm still shocked that he would come out and say that as well. Yeah, and Newt said some pretty terrible things. I mean, he referred to um, this president as the welfare president. Yeah, uh, he's he's right up there with Pat Buchanan with some of the classic um, uh, racist lines that he's put out before. So, as you said, it's really not a surprise that he would say such a thing. Um, and you know, I have one of the, in, in fact, one of the candidates who I helped consult with. He ended up not running for office, but worked with me on the mayoral campaign. Is a practicing Muslim, and he, well, we talk about some of these issues in Philadelphia, particularly. It's it's an interesting issue and in how people want to go. And this kind of goes to Trump's uh, election on a broader sense and what his path to victory would be. And we're going to get into that a little later. But in Philadelphia, we have the largest population of Black Muslims in the entire country, and the city of Philadelphia is forty six percent Black. It's a majority Black city, and as Philadelphia votes so goes Pennsylvania. So it's interesting that a guy like Newt, who supposedly knows the landscape and knows the political ins and outs and is, is shrewd in that space, would say something like that with Pennsylvania, quote unquote, being a battleground state. If it's a battleground state and you need to win Philadelphia in order to win the state, or at least make Philadelphia so close that it's not an advantage for Hillary Clinton. And then one of the things that you do is insult a large segment of the population. It's not really a, a good way to get votes for yourself, which is it, it's kind of hard to uh, wrap your mind around why you would do such a thing. But in addition, talking to some folks and reading about it, Sharia law, which is one of the things that Newt Gingrich was referring to, is like, if you believe in Sharia law, then you can't be in the country basically you cannot be in the country it's that simple but it's kind of hard to break down and obviously i'm I'm not a quran scholar but or the way it was explained to me was that basically sharia isn't just a set of singular principles um that are kind of strict for religion they they kind of are a it's a way of life large group yes it's like it's, it's a large grouping of ways to do things including pray eat interact with your family like it's not just thou shall not and you know i think christians kind of look at it the way we would look at the bible and, and try to project that yeah. and project how we see the bible and how the bible works in christians lives and put that on them and it, it's it's completely different so it's so interwoven as you said it's a way of life it's so interwoven you can't simply just say do you believe in sharia oh uh you you gotta go there isn't a muslim a practicing muslim on the face of the earth that doesn't practice Sharia. So there's 1.5 billion practicing Muslims on earth. If they decided that they wanted to be done with the rest of us, there's really nothing we could do. <laughs> so uh, these little things that they talk about, like Sharia, it's just ways to drum up the base. It's ways to foment hate. And Newt Gingrich and the Republicans have been very effective at it. The problem for them is that there aren't enough votes there. There aren't enough votes in the hate space to win uh, a national office. And they found that out over the last two elections for president, and they're about to find it out again. And it's really mind boggling to me that they think that this is a winning strategy and they keep repeating it. I guess they get confidence from the fact that they win lower seat offices, you know, state rep, 
or, or representatives Governor. in Congress and Senate, they're able to win seats like that using these kind of strategies because of redistricting and you know all kinds of different things play into them being able to hold that power. But it never translates. It, it, the way that it's set up now moving forward, it will not translate. You have women, you have African-Americans and Latinos who are going to dominate that space from here on out. So if you don't win those three categories, it's a wrap. Yeah, you know, actually, I wrote for the local newspaper last year when Dr. Ben Carson made his comments about Sharia law. Mm-hmm. And uh, in short, Sharia law is like it's a code of conduct, essentially, for a personal relationship between a Muslim and Allah. And one of the principles of Islam is that in Sharia law it obligates Muslims to be loyal to their nation, much like Christians are compelled to render to Caesar. And so, you know, it's really, really deceitful to and manipulation to say, oh, they can they can make us come up under Sharia law here in this country. Like that's completely contrary to anything that if you if you actually talk to a, a Muslim scholar, that's what they will tell you, like. No, this not applicable here. It's really just fear mongering and trying to rally a base because at the end of the day, the the name of this game for this election will be who can turn out as any election is really who can turn out to vote. However, I do think that both bases will probably decrease some from 2012 because a lot of people aren't ecstatic about either candidate. And uh, so I think Republicans are just saying, hey, if we can rally our base and get these people out to vote, even if it's in fear, we can win this election because we think that the Democrats will be somewhat split. But in light of us saying that, you know, be somewhat split, Senator Sanders did endorse Secretary Clinton this week for president. This campaign is not really about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, or any other candidate who sought the presidency. This campaign is about the needs of the American people and addressing and addressing the very serious crises that we face. And there is no doubt in my mind that as we head into November, Hillary Clinton is far and away the best candidate to do that as i've told you all before i think that the best option for clinton moving forward is to select sanders to serve vp i know that's not a popular sentiment but i think that's the way to save the bernie of bus people but what you think man? i don't, I don't know man i mean i i think I, I don't disagree with your sentiment what i don't know about though is the Bernie or Bus people. I mean, to me, they play like dead enders, and I feel like they'd rather <laughs> see what's my man's name from Batman, like uh, the Joker. Was it the oh. Joker who says, "I just I want to see it burn"? Yeah, I think that's how they feel right now. Like for whatever reason, they're fed up with the whole system. Um, I think they were fed up before Bernie came along. Bernie connected with people kind of like Trump did on the right. I think Bernie connected with a lot of people on the left who are fed up with it. I voted for Bernie Sanders in the in the Pennsylvania primary. I am not a dead ender, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and I've always had a, I've had a problem with folks who were 
who who say that you know having Hillary Clinton is is worse than having Donald Trump, and I just don't imagine a universe where that's possibly true. And so I feel like there's so many Bernie people um, who prior to Bernie not getting the nomination, who I thought were kind of um, smart, true, well-thinking folks who kind of got the, what was going on in this in this presidential politics. I <laughs> I'm blown away by uh, by some of their viewpoints now. And now, if they went over to Jill Stein, that would make sense to me as far as from a from a personal philosophy standpoint. Yeah, Cornell West like, actually uh, endorsed Jill Stein today. Say that again. Uh, Dr. Cornell West actually endorsed Jill Stein today. And that doesn't surprise me. Uh, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, uh, someone who uh, p- many people may know from his visibility on CNN, he's someone who came out early and supported Jill Stein. It doesn't surprise me that Cornell West would do the same thing. I think there are a lot of folks philosophically who feel like that's the only person that comes close to them. So, I, one, I would endorse them under normal circumstance, but given the current climate, in order to be true to myself and who I presented myself to be, it would be a contradiction for me to publicly support anybody else but Jill Stein, which I can understand where you're coming from in that regard. But I think as a a regular voter, as you're looking at your options, going back to your original point, if Bernie goes with Hillary Clinton, I think there are a lot of people who supported Bernie that would be happy about that. But the dead enders, I think, would see that as Bernie kind of selling them out. And they would be even more angry about that but how many of them are this definitely be a guesstimate but how many of those people do you think have been true democrats all along no no, i agree and and i i think a lot of them may be either um libertarians or kind of republicans or disillusioned with with some of the racial rhetoric that comes out but maybe not all the things that the republican party says i feel you on that and and that's where I, I think it comes back to, I don't think it's a, a large enough number to submarine Hillary Clinton's chances of being president, but I think the Bernie or bus people who you worry about trying to blow the whole thing up by her making him the VP choice, I don't think stops those people from thinking that. I think it's it gets you the Bernie moderates. I think it gets you some other people, maybe some uh, libertarians who may be undecided or not into Trump, this to kind of the Republican never Trump people. Maybe it pulls some of them, but I think the folks that you were trying to target, the Bernie or Bus people, I think they are diehard. I think they're going down with the ship, and they'd rather just blow the whole thing up than see even their own guy become vice president. I really, really wish that I wish, and this is probably part of the Democratic Party's issue. I really wish that we would have did or that we still could in the future do a better job of educating people about the process. Mm-hmm. Because unfortunately, a lot of people say, oh, it was rigged and Sanders never had a fair opportunity, which I disagree. I just I don't think they really understood how our process works. And Senator Sanders, you know, he hasn't really been a member of our process over the years. So, you yeah. know, I was one well, of those I, people I did vote for. I voted for Clinton. I did like some things Sanders said. Some of it I didn't think was politically feasible. Thought they were good in theory. But you have to take note to how he mobilized people. And and part of it possible is just that, hey, he was the only alternative to Clinton for a while. But I've heard some of these people even say, hey, they're going to v- go vote for Trump. 
Yes. Because they rather have Trump than Clinton, which yeah, I've seen a lot of that. Yeah. Which it, it makes no sense. It, it just it literally makes no sense that if you could vote for if you were voting for Bernie Sanders for the things that you said he stood for, you'd be hard pressed to find anything in the Trump platform that matched Bernie Sanders. So it doesn't make any sense. I can understand saying that I refuse to vote for Hillary Clinton and sitting it out or deciding to vote for Jill Karn or Jill Stein. But saying that you're going to vote for, support Trump because your guy didn't get there uh, to me just shows that there's a, a high level of selfishness there. And to me, it, it's max of white privilege because I don't know many people of color who would take a gamble on voting for Trump just because they uh, felt like, forget it. We don't we don't like the system. I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I had I saw a friend I was on Twitter earlier this week and I saw a friend who was arguing with people about not voting. So she's very intelligent. What I'd say is an outstanding attorney, passionate. I, I think sometimes that she allows her passion to kind of dictate her movement. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate everything she does. Phenomenal woman. And she was saying that, hey, I don't have to vote. Um, you know, that's what my my ancestors fought for me to have the right to vote, not to say that I have to vote, which was interesting. And I don't necessarily agree with it, but she was really, really adamant about you're not going to shame me into voting for Clinton. And my perspective has been and continues to be that. Much as you said, if you all were in love or infatuated with Sanders's platform or President Obama, at least get someone that you can get some of those things in a continuation of some of those things. With Trump, we know that, you know, $15 minimum wage, that's not going to happen. You won't have the Affordable Care Act. You know, these types of things, you know, you probably won't be able to have abortion because of some of the thing, some of his appointments to the Supreme Court. So, yeah, I mean, to me, and that, that's that's where it boils down to it. And it sounds like your friend is someone who's talking about abstaining from voting, which I understand is it's the it's the African-Americans. I think that number of African-Americans who have flipped and vote for Trump is, is who are Bernie supporters is very small. I, I've seen a, a, you know, smattering of them here and there, but 
I really don't think there's any number there that would actually register that could do any damage. But um, I think you're right on that. It's, it's, it's stunning to me. Um, and when I talk to people about the, um, you know, how I'm not a Hillary Clinton fan. I ha- I lost a lot of, I guess, the kind of respect I had for her when she ran against President Obama. Uh, some of the things that the Clintons pulled to try to <laughs> tarnish him to me were things I, I, I couldn't forget. And some of the policy decisions that were made under Clinton and, you know, dealing with prisons and private prisons and mass incarceration. And there's certain things I couldn't get past. But when you talk about what the, the Supreme Court is going to be facing in the next two presidential terms, as far as being able to replace people, there's an opportunity to either make the court conservative forever, what feels like forever, or <laughs> for the rest it. of our lives, pretty much. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, or flip it to more reasonable thinking people um, and maybe get Citizens United reversed. And to me, that's the most important thing. Now, people, everyone is going to have their own hierarchy or how they're going to vote. They're going to prioritize what issues are important to them. And to me, if if you are a conscientious voter, you're looking at the things that are most important to you and you're lining yourself with the candidate who lines up mostly with the things that are important to you. And so to me, the top of my list is the Supreme Court. And I know that Hillary Clinton is going to might not pick the person that I ideally choose, but she's not going to pick someone that Trump would choose or anything close to it. And that's all that matters to me is getting that Supreme Court flipped to the side side of reasonable people Um, and the rest of the stuff we can live with and we can work around. But the Supreme Court, you can't. I really think people are underestimating, particularly people who would call themselves left and say that they're going to vote for Trump because Bernie's not available to them. I think they're doing themselves a disservice, kind of like how we would charge many poor whites who are Republicans with voting against their own best interests because of ideological reasons. Like coal miners. Yeah, coal miners. You know, you know West Virginia is full of them. Yeah. Ohio is full of them. Rural Pennsylvania is full of them. I was having this conversation online yesterday, actually, with someone who seemed to be a Trump supporter, talking about how liberals just ignore poor whites, particularly in West Virginia. I was like, well, you know, West Virginia was Democrat until Obama ran for president. They've been Democrat for something like 70 years until Obama won the nomination. Hillary won resoundingly against um, President Obama in the primary in West Virginia. But once President Obama was the nominee, that state went red. And now it's hardcore red, which to me speaks volumes about the mindset of the people of West Virginia, that they could easily flip to the Republican side because their choice was a black person. So I think We've seen many times people vote against their own best interests on the right. And I think that's what a lot of folks are starting to do because of certain ideological disagreements or entrenchments that they have regarding Bernie Sanders. And it's it's unfortunate. Speaking of finding a candidate that kind of you align with, I definitely recommend isidewith.com. And so I, I took it last year. When the Democrats had three or four people, the Republicans had 17 seeking a nomination. And I sided with Clinton something like 93 percent of the time, which was a little bit surprising for me. (laughs) But it's a number of questions. You know, I probably would identify a lot as a moderate on a number of issues like minimum wage. I'm not a huge fan of raising the minimum wage right now. I think there are other alternatives, but. 
you know, when you have these questions like, do you support raising the federal minimum wage? If I say no, then I guess it puts me in a different in a different element or a different uh, grouping because I said no. They probably automatically assumed that I just think seven dollars and twenty five cents is OK. <laughs> but moving forward, the GOP convention is coming up. And last night, Trump. I guess you could say leaked it. And then I thought he was uh, supposed to officially announce it later. Uh, he was supposed to announce it today, but I thought with last last night's terror attacks that he said he was going to postpone it. But he's officially tabbed Governor Mike Pence from Indiana as his vice presidential nominee, which I was a little bit surprised about. What about you? It is and it isn't surprising. I kind of thought he'd go in a different direction. I'm not quite sure which direction he'd go because it's Trump. Uh, but, you know, I, I thought it might be somebody from, quote-unquote, the heartland. Uh, so that part doesn't necessarily surprise me, but who he ended up picking does a little bit. But when you look at Trump's numbers, if you were a Trump person and you're looking at who you have to, to get to your side in order to win an election, right now, you know, the, the polling... Is, is contradictory. When you see various polls, they'll say that Hillary Clinton has a three-point lead or that, uh, they're tied over here or uh, Trump has a slight lead. Um, battleground states, it kind of goes up and down. It depends on really the poll that you read, what the results are. But one of the things that, you, that has polled the same, no matter where the poll is, no matter who's done it, is when you break down the tabs and it goes to women, black people, and Latinos. Right. Trump loses those groups every single time, and he loses them. The women one is closer. It's like 55 to 40-something, but the African-Americans and Latinos, it's, you know, being trounced. I mean, the, there was a poll the other day that had um, in Pennsylvania that had African-Americans like 94% to zero for Trump, and then um, Latinos are similar, like uh, 63 to 10%. I mean, it, they really, he's, he's getting trounced in those numbers. So you get a guy the closest uh, of those breakouts that you have is women. Now you get a guy who is actively crusaded to against women's issues. So now women who may have been on the fence or may have had reasons to support Trump now have a guy who's decided that he's going to go right at, uh, who has made it a career to go after women's issues and be on the opposite side of where many women are. And it seems to me to be a losing strategy. I'm not sure why you would do that. If anything, you'd go after somebody who is more, maybe more moderate in that space uh, or maybe not so vocal in that space who doesn't have a track record um, per se. So it's really amazing to me that you're going to try to win a national election on the strength of winning white men. Uh, it just in, the, in today's America, it, it's impossible. Right. You know, speaking of. Before we go any further, I really want to talk about one thing about Trump real quick that a lot of people really aren't bringing up. But I definitely think it's important. And that's Trump in the Central Park Five. So for those of you that don't know, the Central Park Five were five minority teenagers who were wrongfully convicted of brutally beating and raping a white woman in Central Park in New York in 1989. At the time, New York did not have the death penalty. That was part of Trump's big grandstanding was to bring back the death penalty to kill 
these five teenagers. They weren't even adults. So he took out numerous full page ads and publications in New York, calling them things like rapists, thugs, killers, wild criminals, muggers, murderers, crazed misfits. And now he's the presumptive Republican nominee for president. So what I found even more interesting was that, you know, I I guess this was really a turning point for race relations in this country. It was a little bit before Rodney King, but, you know, there was a tide kind of shifting. Pat Buchanan, who, after he said this, ran for president numerous times mm-hmm. he even said that they one of the one of the teenagers should be hung in central park like he wanted them to literally be hung in late 80s early 90s in front of people so they were exonerated because of a confession of a serial rapist who encountered one of them in prison basically said hey you're in here for something that i did i take responsibility for it So then with DNA testing, it proved that these five young men were not guilty. I encourage you all to look up the case. There are a lot of unethical and illegal things that the police officers did to kind of force a confession from these guys. Or they didn't really confess, but they just said, well, I didn't do it. So they kind of implicated someone else or they knew someone else that did it. Anyway, they received a $41 million settlement. Trump acts like he was some type of guru and he knows more than science. And he's he still doesn't believe that these guys are not guilty and went so far as to say this is the heist of the century. So what I agree with what you're saying with basically Trump and his, you know, his ticket has ostracized and excluded everyone except for white men. In this country. And let's not forget that Pence, the governor of Indiana, you know, they had this, which became a national discussion last year, the Religious Freedom Act about the about same sex marriage and businesses not having to render services to people that to same sex couples. So that's another electorate, a large electorate in this country that they are basically writing off. Hey, you know, we don't care about you. We don't care about your vote. So I really don't think Trump has a path to victory at this time. What about you? Yeah, I, I don't see how that's possible. I really don't. And and for me, it you know, I, I talk about the, the polling for me it, in this country. If you're going to run for a national if you're running for national office, you're going to run for president. You have to have some combination of the Obama coalition. That's it. So you got to have some combination of women, African-Americans and Latinos. And, you know, if you're going to be on the Republican side and you're only going to go for white men, your numbers just aren't going to match. And that's kind of like a, a general numbers um, point of view. But if you break down the states and you and you go to what states, um, if if it's traditional red versus traditional blue with the swing states, up in the air, uh, where can Trump win? And you just don't see the numbers. In Florida, he loses that demographic battle. In Pennsylvania, he loses that demographic battle. In Ohio, it may be closer, but right now he's trailing in that demographic battle. So if you lose Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida, yeah, in Virginia, Virginia's been purple now for a while, 
um, particularly with the, the influx of folks to Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia is much more diverse. Like I went to Hampton University, so Southern Virginia <laughs> is red. <laughs> but Northern Virginia is strong enough um, blue uh, that it can kind of swing the state, kind of like how Philadelphia is inside Pennsylvania. It's so strongly and so populated blue in a Democratic stronghold that it trumps whatever the state does. So as long as Pennsylvania does what the Democrats expect it to do, it, it's going to be Democratic for here until the far future. Uh, it would take a, a huge revolution uh, turnover in Philadelphia for that the state to ever change. But it, you're going to lose, uh, as you said, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida. There's no path to victory because you're not winning California. So it, and he's not going to win New York. He's not going to win New York. Um, he's going to win some of the traditional states. Like he's going to win, you know, Texas. He's going to win Alabama, Mississippi. You know, he's going to win Kansas, whatever. South Carolina. So, right. And West Virginia. Right. But when you talk about the Electoral College, he just does not have the numbers. And Nate Silver's talked about this kind of in depth. He's put out a number of countrywide charts and, you know, to show a map of the United States and based on polling and his data, his data where um, states are predicted to go at this point. And right now, he has it as a landslide in favor of Hillary Clinton, one of the most lopsided victories in recent presidential history. So it's really looking bad for Trump as a path to victory. Now, one of the things that people talk about um, as a way Trump could kind of sneak in is if enough people go with Jill Stein. Now, personally, I like Dr. Jill Stein. And what do you like about she, it? Well, if she if she were a Democratic nominee, I'd vote for her. She's super left, which is where I tend to stand. But when one of the things I appreciate about her is how she talks about race in this country and the things that need to happen. Didn't, I've seen her. Didn't her I, race plan include like reparations? Um, I've seen her talk about that. I don't know how much that actually is a part of policy of what she's. But she she talks about the idea that this is a problem that's never been fully solved. And until we solve it, it can't, it can't ever be, we can't move forward as a country. So we can't fix this because we're not acknowledging what's really going on. And we have to acknowledge it first. But once we acknowledge it, then we have to do real repair. It can't just be like saying, hey, okay, we, we realize that we've been racist all this time, but you know, thanks for forgiving us. Let's just move forward. It has to be real concrete measures taken to help repair what's been done. Now, as far as what those reparations, quote unquote, would actually be, I'm, I, I can't speak on that. But she also talks about the prison industrial complex. She talks about mass incarceration. She talks about living wages. She talks about corporate responsibility, things like that, which are things that I, I can all sign on for. My problem with people who deal with Jill Stein or, or say they're going to vote for Jill Stein or people who think that Jill Stein is a nationally viable candidate. When I worked in talk radio for 15 years before I got into politics. And so I've covered a lot of elections, both locally and nationally. But when you work inside of a campaign, particularly for mayor of a city of over 1.5 million people, you really get to see a larger scale of how the political machine works. Right. And one of the things that ended up hurting us in our campaign as we ran for mayor was the lack of people on the ground to knock on doors. Our opponent had us like three to four to one as far as people on the ground to be able to knock on doors. We raised more money, but we didn't have as many people. So that actually kind of ended up being the difference in turnout and getting people energized to vote for the guy who won. And I think people really underestimate that. And it's one of the things I think that's going to trip Trump up as well is that he has no national infrastructure. 
People forget that. He has no national infrastructure right now. He has, I think, 30 people working for Trump for America. I mean, we had 30 people working field for the city of Philadelphia. And right. he has 30 people nationally for the country, which is crazy. Now, obviously, there's a lot of time to build infrastructure between now and then, but this infrastructure should have already been in place. President Obama had his infrastructure deeply embedded before the convention. Hillary Clinton and the Clinton machine, they're infamous for having their stuff on the ground taken care of. And so the fact that a, a presumptive GOP candidate would only have 30 people at this stage of the game is, I, I can't even really imagine how that's possible. But then take that to Jill Stein. She has no money. Right. So she can't build infrastructure. She can't run a national campaign. So she can't run a national campaign. So she has no ability to put people on the ground in multiple cities that matter. Forget about states, but multiple cities that would matter to her to swing people to her side to kind of flip this election and put it on its head to steal enough Hillary Clinton people. And hopefully the keep the hopefully the, the Trump election. numbers would stay low enough that she would be viable. Right. But what would that number be? Like what number would she have to get to to make that possible? Well, I mean, she's not even polling high enough to be uh, well, no, on the no, debate no, stage. Absolutely not. But I'm saying in a in a Jill Stein supporter's dream, like your uh, wildest dream, how many people do you think you could pull to Jill Stein with no infrastructure, with nobody knocking on doors, with no commercials? I think people really underestimate how much power is in um, getting the word out, whether it's through commercials or whether it's people meeting face to face and shaking your hand and saying, let me tell you about Jill Stein. Like, I think people really underestimate how much that can impact an election is why the Obama machine is so powerful. They had in Philadelphia alone, there were neighborhoods where they had. 15 offices in single neighborhoods. Right. So when you think about what Jill Stein can do nationally, she can't come close to that. I'd be surprised if she has 15 offices nationally at this point. So she has no money. She has no infrastructure. And so one of the other things that comes up is people say, well, if everybody who said I'd vote for Jill Stein, but she doesn't have a chance actually voted for Jill Stein, she'd have a chance. No, she wouldn't. <laughs> because the of majority of people don't even know she exists. Right. That's what I'm saying is that people who know her, say that, you know, if the people, all the people who know her voted for her, then she would, she would be more viable. Well, no. And, and again, I would ask those people, what, what number do you think that would get to? If you got every person in the United States who liked Jill Stein and wanted her actually to be president to vote for her, what number do you think that would get you to? 10%? 20%? I don't even think it would get her to 10%. No, I don't, I don't think it would get to 10%. But I'm saying in your wildest dreams. Now, in order to be viable, and to actually have a chance to flip this election, she'd have to have 30%. And there's no planet in the universe. <laughs> there's no reality. There's no you know quantum wormhole escape where you can get to another place where she's going to get 30% support. She can't do it. She can't spend to do it, and she can't do it with people on the ground. So that's one of the things that um, why people who say that they're going to support Jill Stein, I think, fail to understand. Now, you got folks like Cornell West, philosophically, he has to do that. So I, I don't fault him for that. But I think people have to be realistic about what's possible here. And I think a lot of folks, and I, I've been one of those people, and I, I'm not, not even to say that I'm removed from it, where you're idealistic and you feel like this is the best person for my beliefs, 
and I know this person got in, they do a great job. Okay, maybe that's true. But unless she suddenly got $200 million, it's not going to happen. It's not happening. And not only is it not happening, it's not close to happening. But what she could do is get 7%. And if an election were close, she'd keep Hillary Clinton from winning, which would make everybody, you know, the Jill Stein people would be like Nader, what he did kind of to Gore. Although, real quick, I think Gore did that to himself by running away from Clinton instead of embracing Clinton. But that's another story. I think Jill Stein, if she did anything at all, it would be a spoiler for Hillary Clinton, which I think people also underestimate. When you look at the, the overall picture, though, with Trump's polling numbers and not being able to pull anything from the woman, black, a Latino coalition, and then you look at Jill Stein, who has no national infrastructure and no people on the ground to be able to get out her message and no money, I don't think that you take Jill Stein and add it to Trump, uh, 50% of white men or whatever his number is uh, on that. I don't think that those two numbers together prevent Hillary Clinton from becoming from president, president of the States. I don't think that the math is there. So when you're talking about past the victory, to me, in the scheme of everybody who's there now, given the various scenarios that can unfold, I still don't think there's a way that Hillary Clinton doesn't have the only path to victory. She has the only path to victory. And I don't think anybody can do anything at this point to really change that outside of a catastrophic event, her being indicted, something like that, something that could really throw things off. But all things standing the way they are right now, she's the only person running who has a path to victory. So in closing here, if you were advising Secretary Clinton, who would you uh, be pushing her towards selecting as vice presidential? That's hard, man, because I love Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I love her to death. And I would ask her to, I'd tell her to seriously consider Elizabeth Warren. I know she's not. Elizabeth Warren is scheduled to speak, I think, on the first or second day. So that rules you out for VP because you'd have a much more prominent position of speaking if you were going to be considered for VP. I think she has to lean Latino and probably Castro. So Castro over Kane? I think so. I think so. But, I mean, there may be some other people that we're not even sure on the radar that could be a dark horse or somebody that, that just kind of a one of the things that we've constantly seen is this um, kind of pe picking people based on swing states and stuff like that. That's kind of been a formula that's been done time and time again. One of the things we haven't seen in a while is a pick of somebody uh, from outside of Washington, not necessarily Washington, but outside of elected office. I don't uh -huh. know if that's in the realm currently. But it also wouldn't surprise me if somebody was being considered uh, in that space. Like a general or something? Yeah, you know, one of the, uh, the, before he kind of got tarnished over the years, but there was a time there was a lot of energy behind Wesley Clark. Somebody like that, or somebody huge in the private sector. But again, that's just me kind of uh, thinking out loud. I don't know that that's even happening. But it kind of, I think if someone were to do that, it could one, give her a little bit of space to deflect some of the stuff, uh, you know, the ridiculous Benghazi kind of crap that she's going to have to deal with. And no matter what, she, no matter who she picks, she's still going to have to deal with those kinds of um, trumped up stuff from the Republicans. But also, you know, certain business community folks, you know, one of the appeals that Trump has to some 
which you would think maybe reasonable-minded business people, is that he's a quote-unquote business person. To me, his business practices would contradict that. But a lot of people <laughs> see him as a successful business person. So if you brought someone in who's a successful, like on a major scale business person, or someone who's elected to office who has that kind of business background, maybe that helps swing some people from his side uh, to support her further. But I wish from an idealistic standpoint that people would kind of pick a VP that fills their holes more so than picking someone who's just going to help them deliver a state. You know what I mean? Right. I, I mean, I, I, because no president, no president is going to be perfect. No person running for president is going to be perfect. But what you can do is you can create a team of people that come as close to addressing the needs of your base as possible. And I feel like what's going to happen with her, she's just going to get someone who's good in the moment and maybe not the best person to counteract the places where she's weak or has the most resistance, even from her own side. You know, there's a lot of energy around Senator Kane. And I, I told listeners a few weeks back, I like Kane. You know, we've had some conversations over the years, but I don't think he adds a lot to the ticket this year because of Virginia. Yeah, it's a swing state, but. If there was an issue in Virginia, she would win Virginia because of our governor. And so yeah. I think that kind of eliminates the need to select Kane. So obviously looking at someone in in Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania. But, you know, even with Warren, one of the big issues with her is honestly the Republican governor. And he can appoint someone to the Senate. And, of course, he wouldn't re- uh, would not appoint a Democrat. So same issue in Ohio. I forget the guy's name that apparently she's pretty high on, but she doesn't want cases to appoint. I think he's in Congress. So it's definitely interesting. You know, y'all know I, I like I like Sanders. You know, I, I don't think I don't think she will select two women. Not that I have a problem with it, but I don't think. No, I, I don't think they select two women. Uh-huh. No, I, I just don't think. I don't think um, even the people in her own circle are are ready uh, to to do that. I think it'd be great. I'd, I'd love to see two women. I, it's to me, it's so funny when um, when this was kind of first being tossed around as a possibility. People were saying, "Well, um, you know, do you think you could ever have?" two women nominated like you've had two men nominated for how many times over how many years you know and so um the fact that the idea of two women being nominated at the same time becomes a little much for this country to me is is um ridiculous. is ridiculous but yeah so i think you know as a country we've progressed to a point where we would support two women running for president and vice president unfortunately i think the way you've described it the the setting on the ground. I mean, the reality on the ground is such that it, it's just not possible this time around. Right. Well, man, thanks so much for man, it's joining been great. me. Thank you for having me, man. Tell everybody how they can get in contact with you. Well, the easiest way to catch me is, is, uh, online. I'm a uh, albdam, A L B D A M N, uh, on Twitter. And you can find me at Albert L Butler on Facebook. Uh, but Twitter is really uh, where it's at for me. So if folks want to reach me, they can reach me there, uh, and we can talk further if anybody needs anything service-wise. I'm happy to help. Okay. 
Well, once again, thanks a lot. We'll be in touch. Talk to y'all next week. All right, man. Thanks again.